Good morning, Fellowship Greenville. So good to see you, and a special welcome to all the kids. Great to see you guys in the service. And, uh, you know, since we were yelling out things earlier in the early part of the service, I'd like to know, I'd like all the kids to yell out what your favorite Thanksgiving food was, or is, all right? So I'm going to go one, two, three, and then yell out what your favorite Thanksgiving food is. One, two, three. I got that. Brownies? I know in, a, in our staff meeting, in our uh, worship planning staff meeting, about 10 people in there, and I think eight of them picked mac and cheese. And I'm like, is that even a Thanksgiving food? It is, I'm a, but anyway. Mine is uh, my, my own sweet potato casserole. I've got a great rest. I've got a great rest. Go ahead, yes, you can clap. <clears throat> But um, anyway, hope you had a thankful Thanksgiving. And uh, look, it's, it's nothing that a couple extra trips to the gym won't work off, right? So anyway, this is your first time with us. We're glad you have chosen to worship with us today. And uh, one of the things that we want you to know about us is that most Sunday mornings, if you attend here on a regular basis, you'll find that we're teaching our way through whole books of the Bible. And we're currently working our way through the book of James, New Testament book of James. James uh, was a half-brother of Jesus. He grew up in the same home with Jesus. And uh, he became a Christian after the resurrection, Christ follower after the resurrection. He was the leader of the new church in Jerusalem. And the book that bears his name was actually, it's actually a letter that was uh, sent out to a group of Jewish Christians that had been scattered across the Roman Empire because of a great persecution that broke out against the church. And those Jewish Christians were going through really dark and, and difficult times. They had lost their homes and businesses. They were doing whatever they could do to put food on the table for their families. They were constantly looking over their shoulder, wondering if some Jewish zealot bounty hunter would arrest them and drag them back to Jerusalem. And so James writes to these uh, Hebrew followers of Jesus to encourage them to put their faith into action. He writes to reassure them that God is still in control and they can and must continue to trust him in the midst of the hard times that they're going through. And he kind of calls them out. He gets in their face for uh, compromising their faith. In other words, for not doing their faith, uh, which he says is the only thing that will keep them and preserve them through trials. He says that doing your faith is the only way to experience the blessing of God and, God is, and God's presence in your life when God seems distant and aloof. <clears throat> and James says, look, if in the midst of your trials and temptations, if your faith doesn't express itself in some kind of visible, tangible actions, then for all intents and purposes, this side of heaven, your faith is worthless. It's useless to you. It does you it doesn't do you or anybody else any good. For all intents and purposes, he says it's dead. He says faith without words, faith without action is dead. And by dead, he doesn't mean non-existent. Dead means lifeless. <clears throat> A faith that's not put into action will not allow you to experience the life that Jesus died to give you. <clears throat> and, and, and two messages back, we worked our way through the most difficult passage in the book of James, where James hammers out his theology of faith and obedience, or faith and works, 
And we saw how that James and Paul agree that faith in Christ alone is what saves you eternally. But James is emphasizing how the faith that saves you eternally is the same faith that saves you temporally. In other words, that saves you and keeps you and brings you through the trials of life. And, and I don't know for some of you that uh, uh, some of you have never heard James taught the way that we're teaching it here, and you've had lots of questions, and I've gotten emails and cards, all good, respectful um, questions and everything. I've had lots of after-service conversations and phone conversations and over-coffee conversations, which I love, by the way. I love talking Bible with you about these kinds of things. And your questions have been really good ones. And I would say, if I could boil down all the questions, they, they all have a root to them. And that root is the one basic, most important question, and that is, well, what is faith? What is faith? If you were talking to someone about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, no doubt at some point in that conversation, uh, you're going to have to talk about putting your faith in Christ or having faith in Christ. And so if that person asked you, what is faith? What, what is faith? What, what would you say? How would you explain faith, define faith in a way that they could understand? And that's what I want to talk about today. So we're going to push pause on our study through James. And this is kind of an intermission in our James study, because I want to try to address this question that still has been lingering out there. It's kind of an intermission to make sure that we're on the same page when it comes to a biblical definition of faith. Now, I want to start by doing a little imagination exercise. <clears throat> that is, I want you to imagine what your life would be, would be like if you really, really, really believe there is a God who loves you unconditionally a God who is committed to your best interest and that you could trust this God to walk with you each and every day of your life. Imagine that there is a God so, who so controls the circumstances of life, who is so actively involved in your life that no matter what happens to you, good or bad, that you would have absolute confidence that this God would leverage it for his glory and your good. Imagine that you had the kind of faith that when some great thing happens to you, that thing doesn't pull you off center into yourself and cause you to lose perspective because you know and you believe that that thing came from God, it didn't come from you. And when bad things happen, those things don't pull you away from God or destroy your faith in God because you believe that God allows everything that comes into your life, he allows it to come in for a reason. I mean, imagine what your life would be like if you really believed that. Imagine how differently you would respond to the negative events in your life. I mean, what would you be afraid of? Practically nothing. What would you worry about? Very little. Imagine how few times you'd feel compelled to lose your temper. Imagine how few times you would feel the need to lie thinking that that would make things better. Imagine the internal peace you would have as you face the trials of life. Imagine how you would feel if you really believed there was a God in heaven who could be fully trusted. And I believe if we were to really embrace a faith like that, it would change everything about us. It would, it would affect every part of our lives. Now I say that because I've met a few people like that. I, I, I have to admit, be honest, I'm, I'm not quite there yet, but I've met people like that. Now, that's comforting, isn't it, to know that your pastor 
it, it doesn't feel like he has that kind of faith. Uh, no, I'm more like you. Uh, but I've, I've met people like that. I watch them face things. And sometimes, sometimes I think, oh, come on, you're either lying or things aren't as bad as you, you make them out to be. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You see, you see somebody going through some tragedy and the other's sad and they're hurt and they're, they're grieving and they're, there's, 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 they have tears. But they also have this faith that anchors them and keeps them from bitterness and resentment and, and turning away from God. And you see that, and, and sometimes you're like, hey, you, you need to wake up here. I mean, you're not being realistic. I mean, are you paying attention to what's going on here? Do, do, you, do you not get it? I mean, don't you realize that, that this, what's happened now is permanent? Don't you understand what the future holds for you? And they, they, they'll say things like, well, we'll just see what God's gonna do with it. Or, well, we'll just trust God to bring good from all this. And you can question that. I mean, it seems like they've lost touch with reality. But I tell you, I've met people with faith like that, not unfeeling Vulcan kind of people, but faith-filled people. And in watching their lives, I believe that rather than having lost touch with reality, they're actually the only ones in touch with reality. And in that sense, they are aliens of a sort. Because when good things come, they're thankful, but they don't get pulled off center into themselves. And when bad things come, they stay true. It's amazing. You see, we seem to separate a going to heaven when I die faith from a trusting in God when things get hard faith. But the truth is, the faith that saves us from sin is the same faith that saves us through troubles and trials and temptations. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But if we could ever... Uh, really, really, really believe if we woke up every day and started the day by saying, God is with me and God is for me. Whatever comes my way today, God allows and God will make me the person that he wants me to be. If we could, if we could grow, and it's a growth process, grow into a faith like that, it would transform our lives because it would impact every part of our lives. And I believe that kind of life is possible because according to the Bible, that's the kind of life that God has always wanted for us. That's the kind of relationship that God wants from us, and it has been his intention from the beginning. So here's the way the rest of the message is gonna break down. I'm gonna do a little uh, Bible overview of what faith is, looking at the Old Testament and New Testament, and then the second part of the message, we're gonna break it down and we're gonna look at one story from the Gospel of Matthew where we see a man who lives out the kind of faith that we see all through the Bible, the kind of faith that honors God. That's our, 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 our uh, approach. So, <clears throat> we'll start at the beginning. Christians believe that in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, there was really a garden named Eden, named Eden, and there were two people who lived there, Adam and Eve, and that story, even though it might seem fanciful and like a fable or a myth or whatever to some, the reason that we take it seriously is because Jesus affirmed there was a real Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, and we just kind of go with what Jesus believed. I, I mean, when, when a guy r rises from the dead, we just go with him. It's like, Jesus, whatever you, whatever you believe, that's what we believe, because he, I mean, you know, if a guy raises from the dead, we need to just believe him. So we believe the original story of creation is history. Anyway, a long time ago in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. 
And uh, you've heard the story, of course. They ate the fruit that God said, don't eat this fruit or you'll die. But right before they ate the fruit, right before they disobeyed God, and this is important because the Bible doesn't say this the way I'm going to say it, but right before they ate the fruit, something happened that caused them to disobey God. And that is, they came to believe that God could not be fully trusted. They decided that what God has said about eating the fruit was not true. He said, if you eat the fruit, you'll die. But they were tempted to believe, and they embraced the belief, oh, we're not gonna die, we're not gonna die. And even though they could look around and see all the very good things that God had provided for them, that one prohibition about not eating that one fruit, fruit of that one tree, that caused them to doubt God's goodness. I mean, here they are living in the middle of a beautiful garden, uh, literally a paradise that all came from the good hand of God. They're, they're living in that and they believe the lie that God was holding something back from them, that God wasn't completely good, that God wasn't completely trustworthy. And they decided that the only way to have what was really good in the world was to disobey God. So they quit trusting in God because they believed a lie. A lie which caused them to think that what God said was not true and that God was not as good as they had perceived him to be. And their lack of trust in God led them to disobey God. Now here's the point. They quit trusting God before they disobeyed God. And when trust was broken, the relationship was broken. And from that moment on, though, as you read the, the story of Scripture, from, from that moment on, far from giving up on us, God began a quest to rebuild trust with the human race. And all through this book, Old Testament, New Testament, here's what you hear God saying. You hear God saying, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. But we hear we hear it as, obey me, obey me, obey me. But that's because the people in my profession have too often missed it. And we've come up with some really bad theology that puts people in bondage to all kinds of rules. But when you read this, when you read scripture, that's not the point. After Adam and Eve sinned, God immediately went into action to say to the human race, I want you back, I want you to relearn to trust me, I want to invite you back into a relationship with me based on trust, not obedience, a desire, uh, I, God was saying I desire a faith-based relationship with you. And when that faith is in place, when trust is in place, when trust is in the relationship, obedience follows. But what really honors me what really pleases me is when the people that I have created and loved learn to fully trust me. Now, isn't it true that any relationship that's a healthy relationship is a relationship built on trust? And when trust is broken, the relationship is broken. Without trust, there's no way to experience a real relationship. And in the Garden of Eden, the relationship between God and people was broken because trust was broken. And their act of disobedience was simply a manifestation of a lack of trust in the goodness of God. And it's very interesting as you continue to read the story of the Bible, the ancient story of the beginnings of all things, 
before God gave the Ten Commandments, before God gave the law and all the thou shalts and thou shalt nots, before God says, obey me, you know what God says first? You know, you know what God says to the, the first man who became the father of the Jewish nation? God says to Abraham, trust me, trust me. Trust in who I am and the promises I'm making to you. And later in Genesis, we read that God calls Abraham to leave his home uh, and, and go to an unknown land, an unknown destination. Didn't know where he was going or how long it would take to get there. But God promised Abraham that he would give him land and children. And that land and children would become a great nation, became the nation of Israel. And the Bible says this, and Abraham believed God, he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, listen, he believed God's promises. Abraham trusted God and the promises of God, and what happened? Scripture says, and he became God's friend. In other words, he experienced a restored relationship with God. How? By faith, by trusting God and the promises of God. And later, after God kept his promise to Abraham, when the nation of Israel ended up in captivity in Egypt, before God gave the law, God told Moses he was going to deliver his people. And God says, okay, watch this. I'm about to do something so amazing that when at the end of all of these miraculous events that I'm going to do, you will trust me. I'm going to show you who I am and what I can do. I'm gonna show you that I am God and, 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 and I'm powerful and good and I want the very best for my chosen people. And God says, when you see my power and my goodness towards you, when you know that you, uh, when you, when you begin to know me and trust me, then I'm gonna tell you how to live and, 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 and you'll take me seriously at that point. So, so, so here, here's the deal. The law, the commands to obey, the thou shalts and thou shalts nots came after, listen, after trust was rebuilt. After trust was rebuilt. You see, God doesn't ask us to obey him first. He asks us to trust him because he's honored when we trust him. And obedience is the natural outflow of a relationship built on trust. But we get it backwards. All too often we get it backwards. You see, many of us grew up thinking that God was all about, here's what I want you to do, but that's not true. The Bible is all about, here's what I want you to believe about me. Here's who I am, trust me. Here's what I can do, trust me. And when you see who I am and what I can do, then you will want to live your life my way. And, he says, my word will help you learn what it means to trust me and to love me with all your heart and mind and body and soul and strength and love others like you love yourself. But God says, I don't want you to ever think that my relationship with you is performance-based. It is forever and always faith-based. Never think my relationship with you is measured by how well you do or how much you know. No, my relationship with you is based on trust. Now, fast forward to the New Testament, thousand years thousands of years after the law was given. When Jesus came, he invited people back into relationship with God, and what did he tell people to do? What was his message? He said, believe in me. 
trust in me. I love you. I love all of you, no matter who you are and what you've done. I'm here to tell you that God loves you and he wants you back. And the way back into relationship with God is by believing in me, trusting that I am the one who has come to make things right between people and God again. His message was believe in me, trust in me. That was his invitation. He said it over and over and over again. In fact, believing in and trusting in Jesus is the central theme of the entire Gospel of John. And, and to show us how much he loves us, Jesus took the punishment for our sins on himself by dying on the cross. And to show us that he really does have power to make good on his promises, he rose from the dead and he gives, gives forgiveness and life to all who trust him for it. And he's saying to every one of us, look at me. Look at who I am. Look at what I taught. Look at what I have done. Examine the evidence for yourself and trust in me. And this just blows my mind because the Bible is so consistent. The Bible tells one story start to finish. And if you're not a Christian uh, or you're new to Christianity or just checking it out, what I'm about to say is so important. In fact, this may be the reason why you're here this morning, just to hear this. But listen, doesn't it make sense that if the relationship with God was broken because of a lack of trust, doesn't it make sense that we enter back into a relationship with God through trust? One more time, the story of the Bible tells us that just as the relationship with God was broken by a lack of trust, a relationship with God is restored by an expression of trust. You see, every other world religion says you behave your way into God's good graces. But Christianity says no. You believe your way back into good, God's good graces because what God wants from you is not obedience. He could force that, but he doesn't want a relationship based on fear. What God wants is a relationship built on faith, on trust, and trust has to be earned. Trust has to be earned, but this is the truly amazing thing. This is absolutely mind-blowing. Even though it was our fault that our relationship with God was broken in the first place, God has consistently worked to earn back our favor. God has done the work to win us back even though he was the offended party. And in the person of Jesus, God says, see, this is what I'm like. I love you, I've come to invite you back, I've come to win you back. I want you back no matter who you are or what you've done and I'll die to prove it. And Jesus did. And so he says, trust me, trust me, trust me because when you trust me, then you will follow me. You see, the way you become a Christian is the very opposite of how Adam and Eve got out of a relationship with God. You enter back into a relationship with God by faith in Jesus. That is, you trust that when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the one who believes in me has eternal life, then you are personally 100% confident that Jesus will keep that promise to you if you put your faith in him. You trust that when Jesus says, the one who believes my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under God's judgment, but is passed from death to life. 
you believe that Jesus has the power to make good on that promise, and not just in general, but to you personally. Now I ask you today, have you done that? Have you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone? Are you trusting him to forgive your sins and to give you eternal life just like he's promised in this, these two out of many, many passages? If not, I encourage you to do it now. Trust Jesus to make good on his promise to forgive your sin and to give you a brand new life with God that starts now and goes on forever. Trust him. That's the first step. And if you would like to talk about that or we'd like to pray with someone about that, we've got people up here in the front over in this little prayer corner. They'll be glad to talk with you about that after the service. That's the first step, putting your faith and trust in Jesus. Then, from that point on, God wants you to grow in that same kind of trust so that your faith shapes every part of your life. Again, the faith that saves you eternally is the same faith that saves you now, day to day, in the midst of whatever you're facing. And God wants us to wake up every morning and say, I have absolute confidence that God is with me and that God is for me. He is who he says he is and he will do for me what he says he will do. And I'm gonna live this day trusting that whatever comes my way, good or bad, God is personally involved in all the events and circumstances of my life and whatever I face, I'm gonna be able to face it confident that God loves me. So, what is faith according to the Bible? Old Testament, New Testament. What is faith? Faith is trusting that God is who he says he is and he will do what he says he will do for you. That's, it's just that plain and simple. Trusting that God is who he says he is and that he will do for you what he says he will do. In the Old Testament, faith was believing that there, that that Yahweh God was the one true living God, all wise, all powerful, all loving, and he makes and keeps promises to the people he loves. Same thing in the New Testament. Faith is believing that the one true and living God came to earth in the person of Jesus, who lived and died and rose from the dead to forgive our sins and give us brand new life with God that starts now and goes on forever. Faith is believing that Jesus is who he claimed to be and trusting that he will keep his promise to you if you put your faith and trust in him. So faith is trusting God, that Jesus is who he says he is and he will do for you what he promised he will do. It's that plain and simple. Nothing added to it, nothing taken away from it. It's all about who God is and what God does and whether you believe it or not. Now, in the Greek, first service didn't get this, I'm gonna throw it in on this one. In the Greek, the word for faith is pistis. It is translated belief, faith, or trust. It's all the same thing. Now, in our minds, we hear the word belief and we think, oh, belief is just mental assent. It's just head knowledge. And, and it can be. But that's not what it means when you read it in Scripture. It means trust. Uh, we hear the word faith, and faith has all kinds of theological overtones and debates and arguments surrounding it. And it's like, well, what? yeah, I have faith, but that is faith mental assent. Uh, it's, it's a mess. 
Trust is the best word. Trust is a relationship word. Trust is a relationship word. And when you're living in a trusting relationship with God, you are saying, I believe God is who he says he is. I know he will do for me what he says he will do. And then you act accordingly. Because that's the way a relationship works. All right. That's the first point. Second, take your Bible and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. And I want you to meet a man who has faith like this. A man who has faith like this. Matthew 8, verse 5. We read here an encounter between Jesus and a man who was considered to be an enemy of Israel. And it's really a cool story, so let me just give you some background here. Um, At this time, the nation of Israel was under the heel of Rome. Rome had basically conquered all the known world, and Israel was considered to be the armpit of the Roman Empire. In Palestine and Judea, the climate was harsh. The people were rebellious. The Jews were always causing problems. No Roman soldier wanted to be assigned to the land of Israel because it was more like a punishment than an assignment. And on this particular occasion, a Roman officer, a centurion, a man who was over 100 soldiers, came to Jesus and he has this very unusual conversation with him. Matthew 8, 5. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, which is a little fishing village on the north end of the Sea of Galilee, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him. In other words, asking him for help. Now, that was unusual right there because Romans didn't ask Jews for help. Romans demanded things. Carry this, pick that up, stand here, get out of the way, go there, stop. For a Roman soldier to ask a Jew for something, that must have shocked Jesus' disciples and whoever was watching this whole thing unfold. Verse six, he came appealing to Jesus and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him, which must have surprised a whole bunch of people in the crowd that day. I mean, we're going to a Roman soldier's home? What's that about? Well, Jesus had taught, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you, so he's just doing what he's taught. So naturally, Jesus uh, agrees to go to his home, but listen to what the guy says. I mean, this is so strange. Verse eight, but the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, he, he, here it's, he, he's like this. He's saying, Jesus, I've been watching you, and I figured you out. I know how this whole thing works. I know you don't need to come to my house. If you just say the word, I know that my servant, whom you never met, in a house that you've never been to, with a disease you're not even sure about, I know, I believe if you just say the word, he will be healed. And this is mind-blowing, because here's how, here's how the Roman centurion explains why he has unwavering confidence that Jesus can pull this off. Verse nine, he says, for I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Implication, I too, I too. Jesus, you and I have something in common. We're both men under authority. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I've been watching you, Jesus. You talk to illness, and illness obeys you. You talk to demons, and the demons obey you. You talk to the wind and the waves, and the wind and the waves obey you. 
I figured this out because I can say to a soldier, come here, and he comes. I can say to this soldier, stand here all night, and he stands there all night. I can say to a group of soldiers, line up and wait, and they line up and wait. These soldiers do whatever I say, but I'm smart enough to know that the fact that these soldiers obey me has nothing to do with me. The reason these soldiers obey me is because I'm under the authority of Rome, and to obey me is to obey Rome. And the reason these soldiers take me seriously is because they take Rome seriously. They do what I say because I'm under Rome's authority, and Jesus, I've been watching you, and I figured out how it works. You're under an authority greater than you. And the only reason that disease and demons and the wind and the waves obey you is because you're under the authority of your heavenly Father. So you don't need to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now look at this. This is, this, this is again, it's just hard to get your mind around. Verse 10, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was astonished. He was amazed. Now, this is the only time recorded in the whole New Testament where it says that Jesus was astonished. This is the only guy in Scripture that amazed Jesus. By the way, the same word that's used here for amaze or marvel is used down in verse 27 about how the disciples were amazed that Jesus could still a storm with a word. But this is the first and only time that Jesus ever went, whoa, wait a minute, back the truck up. What did I just hear you say? Just say the word? Are you kidding me? Man, I mean, how, 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 <laughs> think about this. How would you like to be this person in heaven? The only man that ever amazed Jesus. He's probably walking around, he's got an I-A-J uh, bracelet on, like I amaze Jesus bracelet. And, and oh no, you can't get one. <laughs> I'm the only one with them. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, here's the question. Now, what was so astonishing about that, pre that, that brief conversation? What does it say about this guy when Jesus is amazed at him? Jesus tells us back to verse 10, he says, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to him, said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you the truth, with no one in Israel have I found such great faith. Nobody ever astonished Jesus with their obedience. Nobody ever astonished Jesus with how well they lived their life or how much they knew. Only once did anyone astonish Jesus and it was the man's faith that caused Jesus to be taken aback. It's like Jesus says, finally, finally, somebody sees me for who I really am and acts on it. It's like Jesus is saying, I'm so honored by a faith like this. I'm so staggered by confidence like this. I'm so moved by somebody who's put it all together. And down in verse 13, he says to the centurion, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. The centurion got it right. He understood that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be, a man operating under the authority of his Father in heaven. The centurion saw Jesus to be a man of power and purpose and kindness, and he acted accordingly. His faith 
was not the same thing as his actions. His actions were the natural outflow of his faith. You see, the centurion believed that Jesus was a man of power and purpose and love and kindness. He trusted Jesus, and he expressed his faith. He put that faith into action by going to Jesus and asking for help. He expressed his faith in word and deed. Now, here's the deal. What the centurion did in that situation, listen, the centurion just did what anybody would do who was absolutely convinced, fully confident that Jesus was who he claimed to be and that he would do what he promised he would do. That's all he did. And Jesus calls that great faith. All it took to have great faith was to be fully persuaded, personally convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be and he had the power to give the word and it would be done. That's it. His faith wasn't great because of something in him. He wasn't some kind of superhero of faith. The centurion's faith was great because he saw the object of his faith as great. He saw Jesus as great and powerful and good and able to do what he says he will do. And it was like Jesus, Jesus was like, whoa, you actually believe I am who I say I am and I can do what I say I can do. I've not seen, no, there's been nobody else that's put it together like that and I love it. So be it done to you as you believed. Jesus was amazed by this man's faith because there's nothing that honors and delights God more than faith. Obedience is great when it's a response to faith. Learning scripture is great when it's a response to faith. But by themselves, those things can just make you proud and arrogant and judgmental. Why faith and not obedience? Because faith makes you dependent on God. It honors God because faith says, God, I am going to live my life because I'm going to live my life the way you say because I trust you. I'm going to live my life believing and trusting that you will do for me what you promised to do. And the reason I'm obeying you isn't to get something from you. The reason I'm obeying you is because I trust you. I'm not obeying to get on your good side. I'm obeying because I believe you are on my good side. I'm not reading the Bible so you'll say, oh look, isn't that great? Uh, she's reading scripture. Ah, uh, they're having a little Bible study and talking about me. No, 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 no. No, I, we read the Bible because we trust that what God says will lead us to the kind of life that he wants for us to enjoy. We're drawn to the word because we trust in him. Or from another angle, we don't say, it's, not, it's like, God, I'm not obeying you because I'm afraid of what might happen if I don't. I'm obeying you because I believe that you're working all things together for my ultimate good and your greater glory. And I want to be in on that. You see, the more convinced we become of the power and the goodness and the wisdom of God and how we are the object of God's power and goodness and wisdom, the greater our faith will be. And in turn, listen, the greater the expression or the outworking of our faith will be. Read the scripture for yourself. There's nothing more honoring to your heavenly father than living with the confidence that he is who he said he is and he will do what he says he will do. 
And that kind of faith is what God has always wanted from the very beginning, and that is the kind of faith that astonishes and amazes Jesus. Now let me tell you why this is so important. Your faith, no matter how strong or weak it is, your faith is the lens through which you view and interpret all of life. It's the lens through which you interpret all of life. If you're an atheist or an agnostic and you don't believe in God or, you, or you're not sure if there's a God, then anytime anything happens in your life, you interpret what happens through the lens of, well, you know, stuff happens. Uh, there's really no meaning or purpose in it. It's just stuff happens. And, you know, you only go around once, so you do the best you can to get the most you can because you're gonna die and that's it. That's your lens. If you're, uh, let's say, a Muslim, you interpret all of life through the lens of Islam and the Koran, uh, the teachings in the Koran, and, and how that, um, and, and, then, and how that in the end, all that really matters is if your good outweighs your bad. That's your lens. If you're a Christian, what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus is the lens through which you interpret all of life. And this is why being fully persuaded, fully convinced, Trusting in God is so important because it's what you believe that gives you hope. It's what you believe that allows you to make sense of the good things and the bad things in life. What's at stake is how you see God and how you interpret all of life. And whether you will experience the blessings of God the way God intends for you. And if your faith is weak, if your confidence in God is shaking, shaky, you'll be like, well, you know, I know I should obey God, but... Uh, you know, I'll try, I don't know, I'll, I'll try to obey, I'll try to do what God says, but I just don't know. And it's like you have one foot in one world and the other foot in another world. It's like Matt Dinsky talked about last week, you're trying to live by heavenly wisdom and earthly wisdom at the same time. And you're wavering back and forth, you're double-minded, unstable in all your ways, like James says in chapter one. You're like, like waves on the sea, you're wavering between yeah, God is good. Well, I'm not, I'm not sure he's so good. I can't see his goodness here. God is powerful. Yeah, I know he's powerful, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm not seeing the, his power at work for me right now. I just don't know. I mean, think about it. And most of us have seen this, but how is it that two people can go through the same tragedy, some horrible, life-altering tragedy, and one person grows stronger in faith while the other chucks their faith? Why is that? It boils down to what you ultimately believe about God, what you believe about Jesus. Is God really with you? Is God really for you, no matter what happens to you? Does God really love you when you can't see it or feel it? It's all about faith. It's about being confident, convinced, of unseen realities and living your life by those unseen realities. That's what Hebrews 11.1 1 tells us. And you can't see God and sometimes you can't feel his goodness and sometimes you don't see his power at work. And in those times, the question is, so what are you gonna believe? God's first priority for all of us is not that we become good little Christians who do nice little good Christian things. No, God wants us, every one of us, to become men and women and students of great faith, circumstance-defying faith, out-of-the-box, oh my goodness, faith. The kind of faith that honors God and actually amazes Jesus. Now listen, not faith that God will do certain things for you just because you muster up faith. 
Not faith in certain things like God will give us what we want or think we need, but faith, listen, but faith that is so strong that if God denied you of the thing you wanted most, you would still be faithful. Because you would, and you'd still trust him because you know that you know that you know that God's ways are always loving and best. And yes, of course, there's times when we are and we, we, we will experience hurt and disappointment and, and, and almost unbearable grief. But the Apostle Paul tells us that it's possible to have a faith where we can say, I'm afflicted, but not despairing. And I'm, I'm perplexed, but I'm not crushed. And I feel forsaken, but I'm not destroyed. And it's the lens of faith that gives us confidence like that. And we can grow into a faith like that. It really is possible. I mean, do you believe that? Listen, this is why we as a church are committed to teaching the Bible in a clear, practical way. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And because we need to know what the scriptures teach us about who God is and what God has done and is doing and will do, we need to know the promises that God makes to us. And clear, applicable Bible teaching is foundational for a growing faith. This is why when we design a worship service, we design it as an invitation for you to respond to God through songs of thanksgiving and praise. We design our worship time for you to participate, not simply watch a performance, because it's our conviction that worship is a necessary response of faith. And as you rejoice in and uh, reflect on who God says he is, as you reflect on and rejoice in what God says he will do in song, it can push your faith down deeper and deeper into the core of your being if you're not just mouthing the words. This is why we invite you into community groups because when you're in a small group and you hit a bump in life, you can have a community of friends who can come alongside you and encourage you to make sure that you have that lens of faith on and help you interpret circumstances from a faith perspective. And I admit sometimes I can't see it and I need other people in my life to remind me of who God is and who I am in Christ, to remind me that God is good. That's why we want you in community groups because community can reinforce faith. And that's why we invite you to find a place to serve. That's why we invite you to go on short-term mission trips. That's why we invite you to become a missionary in your world, your day-to-day -day world. Because when you put yourself in situations in risky situations where you don't feel completely competent or don't feel completely adequate, you have to depend on God to come through for you. You have to depend on God to do things in you and through you that you can't do on your own. And what does that do? It stretches your faith. It grows your confidence in God. It causes you have to have aha experiences with God like, wow, God can use me to make a difference in people's lives. And I want you to know here at Fellowship Greenville, we are very intentional about these kinds of things because all these things, solid Bible teaching, participatory worship, life in community, life on mission, God uses all these things to grow our faith. I mean, imagine what it would be like to be a whole church of, of, uh, full of people like this centurion to be a group of men and women and students who 
um, astonish God by our faith. We, we know it can happen because it happened at least once. Part of my vision for this church is that we would become a church, a whole group of Christ followers who are confident that God is with us and for us. A group of people who don't question the goodness of God when hard times come. A group of people willing to take risks and say, Jesus, you, you just say the word and it'll happen. Because nothing honors God more and nothing protects us more than our confidence in God. But it's got to start with us personally. We gotta be growing in this kind of faith for it to affect us congregationally. So imagine waking up tomorrow morning with the confidence that God is who he says he is and he will do for you what he says he will do. Imagine waking up tomorrow and thinking, today I know that God is with me. Today I know that God is for me. And no matter what this day may bring, it won't change a thing about what I believe about God. That kind of faith is possible. It's only possible, though, when and only when your, fi- your faith finds its resting place in God and God alone. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Like Johnny uh, prayed on the front end of the message today, I, we're so thankful that you have revealed who you are and what you have done and are doing and will do in your word. We're so thankful for the promises that you make to us to be with us and for us that you'll never leave us or forsake us that you love us no matter what you don't turn your back on us when we turn our back on you but you pursue us you pursue us and pursue us inviting us back into fellowship with you thank you for what we've learned today and I do pray for myself I pray for everybody in this room I pray for us as a church as a whole that we would be people with unshakable confidence in who you are and what you can do. And I ask you these things in Jesus' name. Amen.